Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am the malevolently macabre Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who once rescued three babies from a burning building at the same time. Mr. Ryan Seabold! What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? It's going well. I, I just have to say, man, I'm so very proud of you. I'm sitting there, I'm, you know, going through the newspaper, or I guess it would be the online tabloids, uh, whatever you want to call them, and uh, lo and behold, there's my, my good friend Ryan Seabold, front and center <laughs> on the front page there, man. holding three babies yes. in his arms, Burning building behind him. I, I just, yeah, it was an inspiring story. Please do tell the listeners uh, about it. So I got some splaining to do, Lucy. I got to tell you, <laughs> uh, between you and me, uh, we're not recording right now, right? I could just be honest with you. Uh, no, we are not recording. Good, Go good. Okay. Um, basically, <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I was in a meeting. It was on like the, the 21st floor of this uh, industrial complex, and I was doing a drug deal. Um, turns oh, wow. out, unbeknownst to me, Jeez. Uh, the person I was buying the narcotics from on behalf of my client uh, was just three babies in a trench coat. So uh, <laughs> they were all stacked up on each other's shoulders, wearing a trench coat, little uh, wow. dapper hat. I mean, it was. I have to admit, it was the most adorable drug deal I've ever been a part of. Uh, but it, it, it then sounds like the, it. the drugs uh, situation went awry. There was a big shootout, and uh, the building caught fire. So I grabbed who I thought oh, no. was my uh, connect and my plug, and I we jumped and I saved this person, thinking, okay, we made it out. Like we need to run from the cops. Turns out, in the fall, trench coat falls off. Three babies <laughs> in a trench coat. Uh, cops show up, fire department shows up, and I'm hailed as a hero. So here we are today. Nice, nice. <laughs> uh, by the way, can we just acknowledge three babies in a trench coat sounds like either a great family comedy or a great name for an emo band. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, either way, it was great for my career because I turned out to be a hero instead of a drug dealer. <laughs> you know. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Now, what has happened since then? You know, I mean, uh, did you did you return the babies to their parents? Did they offer any sort of reward? Are they with you now? Like, what's what what have the babies done since the infamous picture? So those babies went on to go star in the animated film Boss Baby, voiced by Alec Baldwin. And uh, you know, because <laughs> of work related uh, restrictions by the unions, um, you know, they had to have three of them that they could interchange and uh, swap out between mm. scenes. So uh, the animators would place these babies uh, in various uh, situations and then, you know, pose them and draw them and animate them as such in mocap suits. So they, they've got a budding career. I think they're going to go places. This, uh, all this, uh, you know, celebrity that they got from this news story went well for them. So who knows? Maybe we'll review one of their films here on the show and it'll all come <laughs> full circle for us. 
Okay, well, we have got a film today to look at, and this is, I believe, going to be a very interesting discussion. I know both of us kind of have some interesting insight on this one. Ryan, why don't you go ahead and tell our audience what we're going to be discussing today? This is not Three Babies in a Trench. I felt like Three Babies in a Trench Coat watching this film. Uh, this was a huge uh, amount of personal growth for me. I learned a lot about uh, Japanese cinema. I learned a lot about uh, cinematic stylings and, and uh, working against type. Uh, we're going to talk about all that. Today's film is Tokyo Story by director Yasujiro Ozu. Criterion has this described as Tokyo Story is the crowning achievement of the unparalleled director Yasujiro Ozu, the film which follows an aging couple's journey to visit their grown children in bustling post-war Tokyo, surveys the rich and complex world of family life with the director's customary delicacy and incisive perspective on social mores, featuring lovely performances from Ozu regulars Chisu Ryu and Setsu Kohara, Tokyo Story plums and deepens the director's recurring theme of generational conflict, creating what is without question one of cinema's mightiest masterpieces, which is today's debate, isn't it? Jason. That is a bold claim. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we got a lot to talk about here because of how much people are all chubbed up about this film and why. But first, I will ask you about your chubbiness. What did you think about this movie, Jason? Uh, you don't know. You don't need to bring up my chubbiness on the on the air. I'm working on it. Okay, I've got a few pounds to go, but I'm working on it. Buddy, I meant okay? it in the phallic perspective. Here, we're talking about dicks. Talking about oh, dicks. If we're, if we're talking about dicks, then it's all right. Yeah, yes. I'm all chubbed up in that case. Are you all chubbed up about Tokyo Story? <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Well, Ryan, normally I would say I will let you know right after this trailer for Tokyo Story, but as we know, this is a foreign film, and when it comes to the foreign films, neither Ryan nor I are cultured enough to be able to speak a language other than English, so because we can't understand the trailers, you don't get to listen to them either. However, Ryan, I will tell you, this is one of the more interesting reactions I've had to a film. First and foremost, I do have to say that I was initially disappointed because it's got this crazy reputation. Yes. I'm sure you looked this up, but let me just throw this out for anybody listening that doesn't know this. This is a film, I went on Letterboxd, which by the way, if you don't know what Letterboxd is, it's kind of like the new IMDb, right? It, uh, it, in, a, in a very Daniel Plainview sort of move, Letterboxd is drinking the milkshake of IMDb <laughs> Love that comparison. and crushing it down and has taken all of its market share. And now it is the only thing that exists while poor IMDb and their top 250 struggles to keep up. I love now, that. Now, on Letterboxd, there have been 56,000... 902 people who have chimed in to leave a star rating on the film Tokyo Story. Now, the average is a 4.35 out of 5. Here's some, here's some pretty shocking statistics. 39% of everybody that voted on the film gave it 5 stars. 21% gave it 4.5 stars. And 24% gave it 4 stars. What this means, 84% of 56,902 people gave this film four stars or higher. Yes. Now, I think there's a very solid chance that neither of us are going to give this film four stars, but maybe, or, you know, your equivalent grade rating, but maybe, because I know that both of us had a similar reaction where after researching the film and learning more about the film itself and the filmmakers and the intent and the themes being introduced, we were able to appreciate the film more than perhaps 
the moment we were finished with the film, right? So now Sight and Sound as well, which is a British film magazine, very respected in 2012, they named this the best film of all time. Yeah. This is a film that Paul Schrader has gone on record saying is the best film of all time. Yep. This is a very, very highly regarded film. So because of that, you've got just these overwhelming expectations. I was initially disappointed. Now, right. since then, I will say, I do think this is a good film. I also think this is probably not a film that I would personally say is within my personal favorites. I think this is a film that I appreciate, but it's like, you know, we've kind of talked about uh, where, where you know, we give certain ratings based on like how much is this an experience that sort of reflects what I'm about, cinematically speaking, right? Mm-hmm. So am I going to tell you that Dead Alive is more culturally relevant than Tokyo Story? No, but I'm going to tell you that I enjoyed it a lot more. But this is a good film that may or may not appeal to you based on your cinematic sensibilities. So, Ryan, I'll let you take it from there and tell us what you think. Right. So I'm actually just going to add to what you've already given us, which is um, you know something really interesting about that sight and sound poll is uh, it happens every 10 years. Since 1952, this has been going on. So for 50 years, this has been happening. And BFI sponsors it, uh, just like you said, and uh, the British Film Institute. And they polled... Uh, 10 years ago is the last one. We're actually due for a new one this year. Yeah, right? Yeah, I noticed that. So this is, um, you know, going back to 2012 was our last poll. They polled 358 of the top, world's top uh, best directors. Most famous people, we're talking Scorsese, Tarantino, Bong Joon-ho, Guillermo del Toro, um, Woody Allen even. On and on it goes. And out of everyone, for the first time in 50 years, Citizen Kane was unseated as the director's top choice for the best film ever. And it was replaced by Tokyo Story. Um, Citizen Kane was relegated to number three behind 2001 A Space Odyssey. So um, Nice. And uh, this was ranked uh, number three by the Critics' Choice, which was over 600 of the world's top critics. So, yeah, this film is bananas. And I... It's been in my research, I found that uh, it was around 2012 that this film kind of found a second life. For starters, as I said at the top of the show, or maybe I didn't, this is from 1953. So uh, this guy, Ozu, was up against uh, Japanese filmmakers like Kurosawa um, for, you know, Japanese cultural influence at the time. He was very overshadowed by Kurosawa because Kurosawa had very much more of a traditional westernized version of filmmaking, even though he was telling Japanese stories. It was a way, you know, when you watch a Kurosawa film, uh, you know, it feels like a language that we're more accustomed to. It's more palatable. And the pacing is better and their camera is moving and all of these things that we're going to discuss here shortly. Um, But uh, yeah, this was a weird one for me. The best way I could describe it, and then I'll toss to you and kind of get into this thing proper to start picking it apart, was, uh, you know... Filmmaking is an art. It's a language. It's, a, it's an art language and it's a visual medium. Um, but this to me was kind of like being used to poetry where you're getting all these adjectives and adverbs and descriptions and, you know, this big verbose language. And then all of a sudden you've handed me a haiku and you're telling me this is the best, <laughs> most beautiful poem of all time. And I'm looking at it like, this like these three lines and syllables like that's all you're going to give me and you're telling me this is the best thing ever okay and i was really depressed about it at first but then i started doing the hard work and researching and i found out why because i was so curious 
Um, you know, sometimes you get uh, these opinions from film critics and they're super snobby opinions. I know we dealt with this with Riled Strawberries um, in season sure. one, where we're like, dude, fuck this movie. Fuck it right in the A. <laughs> <laughs> and I stand by that statement, by the way, to this day. If you want to come at me and uh, argue that point, go for it. But um, but yeah, this one was ranked as such by people I super ultra mega respect when you go down this um, sight and sound list of directors. And I'm like, well, they obviously know more than me. I'm a moron. So why? Why, why, why? And so I did the research. I watched a buttload of videos on this and I can't wait to talk to you about it. <laughs> Jason, let's get into it. Absolutely. So initially we get the credit sequence and this plays against a burlap sack sort of image We've got the symphonic music playing, and immediately we're introduced to two aspects of Ozu's sort of cinematic hallmarks, which is not having seen any of his other films. I understand that his credits always begin against a sort of stationary piece of fabric like that, and then as far as the music is concerned, that's really the only time that you're going to hear music is on those initial credits. He doesn't really believe in using score and certainly not underscoring uh, the proceedings throughout the actual film. So we get that right up front, and then we also get a hallmark of his, which are these very long stationary shots of industrial Japan. We see children walking to school. There's a train snaking across the countryside. And what's kind of interesting is that these shots will sort of bookend the film, right? The same shots that we're seeing at the beginning of the film are sort of going to come back and close the film, which establishes a theme right up front of life being sort of very cyclical, right? And that's kind of the intent behind that. Now, we're not really going to know that until we've seen the film, but that's sort of what is being done up front here, in addition to establishing a pace, right? Because this is going to be a very sort of slow, drawn-out film, and these slow-paced, longer shots help to sort of set the mood, right? Now, very quickly, we're introduced to our main characters, Shukishi and Tomi, Again, uh, just a <laughs> quick disclaimer, as usual, we'll try not to butcher the pronunciations. <laughs> we try really hard. Oh we boy. know we probably fail on a lot of them. Uh, we, we, we know we have some uh, Japanese listenership out there. So to any of you, if we do screw up the pronunciations, uh, we do apologize. We'll, we'll try our best here. We're, we don't mean any offense. So Shikishi and Tomi are our elderly couple, and they're preparing to go on an undisclosed trip. After we see a friend wish them well... We quickly jump to Tokyo, where we see one of their son's wife's Fumiko, and she is cleaning and preparing for the visit. Now, she gets into an argument with her son because she had to move his desk to make room for the grandparents. And even when the grandparents show up, these two kids, especially the older kid, are really bratty to them. We're quickly introduced to their daughter, Shige. She's going to be a piece of work over the course of this film. <laughs> and <laughs> they discuss having dinner Right up front, right, we're going to see an element that's reinforced over and over through the course of the film, which is them being really cheap to their parents, right? So when they initially come over, they talk about getting some sashimi, and that's apparently a little bit more of a premium meat. And instead, they're like, oh, no, we'll just make the sukiyaki, which is like a sort of cheaper beef type dish. And again, this is just going to sort of an instance where they're being cheap with their parents, and that's going to happen over and over over the course of this film. Now, Ryan, the one thing I want to ask you is there's a couple things that are established very early on if we're looking for them. And the first thing I want to look at is Ozu's style. I know you did some good research on this, and I'm looking forward to your insight. Very quickly, we see that he's almost got this, like, aggressively minimalistic and naturalistic style, right? It's these really long shots 
It's takes with no camera movement. And then he's got, I guess, a couple sort of hallmarks of his, hallmark shots, that is, which would be like the corridor shots. We've got a number of corridor shots inside the apartment. And we've also got what was referred to as the tatami eye view. Now, for anybody listening that doesn't know, the tatami are the mats that are kneeled upon in Japanese culture, right, in lieu of chairs. So there's very few close-ups. There's a lot of this that's done in wide shots. And even when we do go in close, quote-unquote, it's really in mediums that end up feeling closer because there's really no dramatic close-ups. Now, specifically what I'd like to know, Ryan, is how you feel about his overall style. And then there's also something he does that I kind of found a little confusing at first. I'd like to see what your take on it, which is the way that he employs direction, right? There's a lot of mismatched cut and mismatched action in the early stages of this house where someone will be walking left and then he cuts and all of a sudden, you know, they're supposed to be going the same way, but now he's walking right. And there are some different theories about why he did that out there. I'd like to hear what you think about this. So, You've just given me a lot to to go off of, so <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Break it break it down into a couple different things here. Yes, yeah, yeah. So um, Ryan, if you could just break down the entire career of uh, <laughs> <and> stylings, <laughs> why he did those things. Uh, talk to me about his childhood, and if you could, uh, <laughs> maybe uh, talk about the writing and narrative. Um, yeah. So no, no, no. Specifically with regard to his the the let's the start shots with the that style. he employs. Let's yes. start with the shots that he employs. Let's start with the shots he employs. Correct. So this was off-putting. Um, this whole movie was off-putting. Uh, I think I texted you uh, midway through, um, please tell me something happens and this isn't Wild Strawberries 2.0 or something along those lines. And then I think I texted yeah. you uh, towards the wrapping up of the film that I hated this film. With all of my heart and soul, I hated this film because it was so outside of our... I guess, westernized norms, but I don't even want to call it that. These are just straight cinematic norms. Um, you know, camera movement and eyeline and the 180-degree rule that we've talked about that he breaks. You know, uh, this guy is... It made me think of movies like... So there there are two movies that we've seen on this show that, that I want to compare this to uh, and contrast it to, more or less, and kind of okay. go back to the one of the features that we've unfortunately lost along the way, which is our compare and contrast scenario. And we can kind of go through mm -hmm. uh, the first of which is high and low by uh, Kurosawa. I think it's unfair sure. to compare this to a film like um, uh, Rashomon or, or Ron or something like that. That's, you know, got a little more epic flair, but high and low is a very personal film. And it's also a film that you and I talked about, taking place in more of a proscenium uh, view in the sense that the camera is placed and then we watch these actors mill about. Another yeah. film that we've seen recently that we can contrast this to uh, that stood out to me is Sweet Smell of Success. Um, because just a few weeks ago, we were discussing how fluid the camera movement was and how that whole thing was a dance and ballet with lighting and blocking, uh, the actors never missing their marks and still being able to deliver these stellar performances. Uh, with that said... Um, compared to both of those films, uh, this film, in hindsight, looking at it, this is math. This is not a ballet. This is not a dance. And this is certainly not a stage play. Uh, this is geometry. And because of that, I think is why for a long time it took me a while to kind of adjust or appreciate it. Uh, the vanishing points, uh, the framing in doorways and deep space. 
the way that it's limited by uh, a 50 millimeter camera lens and kind of closed in uh, and everything kind of passes with, within your purview. The camera does not move, I don't think, at all in this film. If it does, maybe once or twice max. Uh, but everything is framed. That was kind of his big deal. Like he would frame things in doorways or frame things with train cars or frame things with people. Uh, and then he would mm -hmm. let the action kind of ha happen in the center of frame and things would pass in and out. Um, it was very, very off-putting and very jarring. Um, even in conversations when he would come in for close-ups um, uh, from his wide shot, rather than doing like an over-the-shoulder standard shot uh, towards your subject, like we would do by today's standards, um, he would center frame uh, the uh, talent and have them oftentimes look right down the barrel of the lens, which was also very yeah, off-putting. I thought that was interesting as well. Yeah, yeah, very, very strange. Um, why he would have characters entering uh, from various directions or, or whatnot... Uh, I'll, I'll kind of pass that back to you and get some insight. I did not find that answer. Um, I only that he would take us from like one situation to the next and let the boring elements kind of play out in real time sometimes. And it was, you know, th this whole thing kind of seemed like, I don't know if you watched the interview with Paul Schrader, but he talks about transcendental filmmaking. Did you see that at all? I did not know. Okay, so Paul Schrader is calling this one of his favorite films or his favorite film of all time, uh, leaned heavily on the uh, style of what he called transcendental filmmaking, which is showing you the boring stuff um, and the emotionless stuff so that when yeah. action happened or emotion happened, um, it really kind of drove those points home. And I would uh, contrast to that, like, uh, you know, I would contrast that to like the films of Edgar Wright, for example, where he cuts on action all the time. Something's happening. Um, you're seeing things in even lightning quick montages. So uh, that, you know, cut to yeah. or contrasting against this where things are happening in real time um, in this uh, tatami shot, you know, worm's eye view, so to speak, from the ground up, uh, framed in by doorways, things happening, you know, two rooms down. It was very, very weird. So this is the element of the film that I still kind of haven't come to terms with. And it sounds like it's probably reflective of Ozu's filmmaking as a whole. Which is, to me, it seems very weird to establish an aesthetic that dictates you're going to be as naturalistic as possible and then turn around and mess with the orientation of your characters. You, you brought up a perfect example in Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright is one of the most stylized directors out there. Now, his style has gone a little more naturalistic in the later shades of his career. But especially early on, all of his shots were staged, right? Quick montages. People are in one location and one shot. They're in another location, the next shot. So when you're bouncing around spatially so much the way Edgar Wright does, I think it makes sense to play with orientation like that. But when you're like, hey, I want to be a fly on the wall and I want to just exist and show people in their natural states – you know, exploring the space between the, dra the drama, so to speak, why then would you incorporate this odd stylization of people constantly switching orientations? Now, when I was thinking about it initially, I actually thought it was a rather clever device before I understood that this was something that Ozu just sort of did. 
And because because you ask me if this is just something a director does by default, that's kind of laziness, right? It just it's the equivalent. Of, ah, you know, we'll fix it in post or, ah, you know, the audience won't care. It doesn't matter. Right. Like, I don't understand what you're picking up by intentionally doing that. So it kind of just feels lazy. But initially what I thought it was doing was I thought it was emphasizing the sort of modular nature of Japanese interior design at the time with regards to the overall layout of like an apartment or a house or something like that. So, you know, because uh, one of the things they talk about is how if you close the screens, for example, you know, okay, now it feels like we're in, you know, a square room or a rectangular room or something like that. But then if you open that door and close another door, now it creates a different impression visually because sure. there's added depth. And then if you open the door beyond that, now all of a sudden we have this long corridor shot. Right. And, you know, things can be sort of moved around to give you different feelings and change the environment, the way that it's laid out. So I kind of thought that this was a sort of clever play on perhaps the confusing nature or the modular nature of the interior architecture and design. Makes sense. The, because yeah. right and left are constantly changing depending on the perspective and, yeah. and where the camera's placed. They're going upstairs and then all of a sudden they're coming downstairs and they go left and they go right. And, and you've got a lot of people, right, at this point, like we're seeing more and more people come in. So I kind of thought it was that thing of just reflecting the sort of bustly nature of having a bunch of people over, but in a very sort of subdued Japanese way at the same time, right? Yes, so, but then it turns out that this is just something that Ozu sort of did over the course of his career as correct an aesthetic choice. So I never, I still don't really understand it. I, 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 I mean, other than like, hey, it makes for some a lot quicker shooting days when you don't have to sit there, <laughs> or pre or pre production days where you don't have to sit there and plan out, you know, these thirty degree rules and all of this. You're just ah, no, nah, it looks good, great. They'll figure it out, no problem, right? We've only got three people and they're not doing anything. I'm pretty sure the audience is going to understand what's going on. So. It's worth mentioning this is a over two hour film. This is like two hours and fifteen. Two hours and twenty minutes. Yeah. So, man, you are sitting on that fucking floor for a long time on your knees uh, in that point of view on the tatami shot um, throughout. So it takes about an hour for you to branch out and get. So you start. You know, the opening shot is with this. It's a static shot. Um, uh, overlooking a a village or a, a town of sorts, and you get a boat flowing down the river, and then from there on out, uh, you're kind of relegated to w- working within the confines of these various enclosed buildings, looking down corridors, and then about an hour sure, yeah. in, it opens up as the mom and dad uh, venture out into the town, and we kind of go out with them and and uh, see them interacting with some of these other characters. But as long as you're with the family in the first hour and seeing the family dynamic that he really beats you over the head with um, for an hour straight as you're just sitting there in a stat, you know, static shot after static shot, and the dialogue is really mundane. They're, it's all small talk, and it's meant to be because it's showing you how uh, mundane the family structure is when you relegate it priority wise in your scale of things uh, behind your career and behind your immediate family and all of that, your extended family all of a sudden falls way down the list. And like, so then they show up and you're like, dude, get in line. I'm busy. And that's kind of the whole first hour of this film is like these, you know, loving parents showing up to see their children that they're so stoked to see. And uh, you know, they're too busy to show them any mind one by one. We see them being dismissed in various situations or scenarios. Um, but it's they're dismissed 
in very realistic small talk ways because you're seeing how boring, you know, they have nothing in common. They have no way to, you know, communicate with each other. Um, it's a previous generation trying to communicate with, you know, the next generation. And um, yeah, so the only overlap in that Venn diagram is small talk and it's so boring. And you're just sitting there on the floor in the corner of this room, looking down this hallway at this boring family, talk about boring things. You know, so how's the weather, blah, 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 weather's good. And they're just, and there's these awkward silences and pauses between uh, the performances and the delivery of these lines. And um, so that, it makes me feel off put. Like, I feel like I'm sitting at a really awkward family dinner, um, you know, with these people that I don't know. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's my understanding that that's very intentional. He's putting you Absolutely. on your back foot 100%. and he wants to make you feel that way. Um, so that. You know, this is one of those, the total is greater than the sum of its parts kind of scenarios, right? Or however the phrase goes, where uh, when I walked away from this film and sat on it and approached it the next day and started doing my research for this show, I had very much a different point of view because the overall emotion and weight of the film and the art of the film and decisions of filmmaking had washed over me in a different way than when I was experiencing in real time, which is so slow and boring and methodical and it's just like doing math on paper and i'm like fuck get me out of here <laughs> <laughs> absolutely it sounds now like you had a similar a take on more. it yeah um is that kind of how you felt when you watched it too because i i felt like such a troglodyte when i was watching this shit i was like dude <laughs> jason's gonna rip me a new asshole for feeling this way but i gotta be honest no i completely get it 100 percent. yeah so like I said, it was a very different experience for me. And it's funny that you bring about this notion of Paul Schrader talking about transcendental filmmaking. That's very much what it felt like was meditation because it's like one of the interesting responses that I had to this film is that I sort of felt like I should have hated it. Like I should have been having a wild strawberries response because I wasn't necessarily enjoying it and the film wasn't necessarily going anywhere. However, I wasn't as bored as I felt like I should have been, question mark. And I was kind of like wondering why that was, right? Because remember how we both talked about when we were watching Tucker and Dale and we were just like, oh my God, it's been forever. And we checked the time and it's like 20 minutes. The hell are you talking about, right? <laughs> right. Didn't have that, right? It felt like a long two, two hour and 20 minute movie, but it also didn't feel like a four hour movie. And oh, see, it did to me. Really? Oh, yeah. I didn't, so yeah, it was... It was kind of weird because I didn't have that, but I also, like I said, it was like, it was like meditation. It was like floating in a tank of amniotic fluid that was just perfectly, what do they call them? Sensory deprivation tank. Okay. That's exactly what this film was. Yeah. It was a sensory deprivation tank where it's like, I have no strong feelings about my experience one way or the other. I am just here. I am in this. This is a thing I am doing. And to your point- <laughs> When the it, when it immediately ends, you're like, well, that was an experience. Don't know if it was good. Don't know if it was bad. It just was. And then it's not until the next few days, because I didn't just watch this last night. I watched it early in the week. So I had time to let it sort of sit and marinate. And I was surprised by how much I recalled about the film in the next coming days and how I would just kind of think about the film. And it wasn't even with a particularly charged experience. It wasn't like, ah, oh, those damn kids are like, oh, I feel sorry for the parents. It's just kind of like, huh, that's it's an interesting sort of film, but also not. And that response was in and of itself interesting as well. So a lot going on in response to a film where not much goes on. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I 
I went and I tried to do the research too. And like, holy fuck, dude. I don't know how much like deep diving you did on this thing and like how many. Oh, dude, there's so much info out there's there. There's a dude. ton am, of info so, on this movie. Um, I actually got the Criterion disc like, you know, I like to do. Humble brag, blah, blah, blah. And uh, it's got a commentary track. It's got a two-hour documentary. It's got a 45-minute documentary, which I think is the Paul Schrader one you're talking about. I okay. didn't have a chance to get to that one. And so, yeah, but, you know, definitely looking at what, six hours at least of, you know, research on this film. And there's a there's a lot, you know, Ozu's a very well-respected filmmaker. So I was surprised that there was as much information on him as there was. I will say in doing the research, though, there are two camps of critics about stuff like this, as there tends to be. And this is uh, the most polarizing situation of those two camps. And... There's one camp uh, that we've tapped into that, you know, we're, we're talking uh, about now and have educated ourselves with. And, and I'm certain that Criterion was laden with this camp. And that's the people that sure. have something to add. And you walk away with something, you feel more educated. But holy shit, dude, are there so many people talking about this movie that are so pretentious and dry and boring that have nothing to add to the conversation and just yeah. want to hear themselves talk. Uh, about something so that they sound smart and cool too because this made some list in 2012 and it's all breathy and monotone yeah <laughs> dude they're they're the original hipster critics right dude, like they it's all the reasons have... why we started this show because that's all we exactly. could find about movies say. like this that we wanted to hear <laughs> hear talked about so we were like oh exactly. tokyo story like let's hear some things about that and you click on a podcast you're like and that's when ozu framed the shot with the two walls and the pit. <laughs> well, not only that, but these people just slob all over its knob to such yes. a non-realistic degree. Like, Correct. You're getting an honest response to this film. Like, is it a good film? Yes. Is it a great film? Probably. Are you going to like it? There's a very good chance you might not. This is definitely not a film for everybody. Don't watch this film if it's after 10 p.m. Your ass is going to fall asleep. Or if you do like I did, make sure you take a two-hour nap beforehand so that you can make sure you can stay up to watch it. That's where the money is. But, you know, to go online, yeah, it's like – and you get the sense that these people – it's like it's those people that didn't even watch the film, right? They have an opinion because they're supposed to have this opinion. And here's the thing. Dude, uh, this probably is a cinematic confession. I was totally that kid when I was in my teens, right? Oh, no. I so desperately wanted to have, like, the right opinion of film. And so I would make sure to read a lot of critical reviews. And there are outright movies that I never saw because the critical community said that it was a bad movie and it shouldn't be seen. And it wasn't until later where I became more confident in my understanding of film that it's like, you know what? I don't have to be cool anymore. It's kind of like... You know, when you go through your different images, right, in high school, you know, you're going to be the cool guy, the jock, the nerd, the music nerd, the film nerd, whatever. And you've got to kind of subscribe to these boxes, right? So it's the, it's the same thing where it's like, oh, you like that band? Yeah, they, uh, they, 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 they're too successful, you know. They actually went gold, so I don't listen to them anymore. I'm, like, really into, like— Fucking sellouts. Just being <laughs> pretentious for the sake of being pretentious, right? Sure. And I'm super glad that I can come on here now and say things like Wild Strawberries is a crap film 
and I don't like Tucker and Dale. Just go screw yourself, everyone else, right? So glad that we're able <laughs> to say show, that. That's our show, bitches. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a I lot even, of Prius owners that like the smell of their own farts, to put it in South Park dude, perspective. Dude, I even heard a very well-respected film critic who I love and respect myself. I love everything they've done. I'm going to let them remain nameless, but in the review of this film... Um, no, no offense to them. Like, this is their opinion. Great. But they're coming at me with shit like the burlap sack title opening is so meaningful because it made me stop and think about each strand of the burlap sack is of different intensity, but it comes together uh, in its simplicity <laughs> to solve. Like, I'm like, oh, my God, dude, I'm yeah. you're not helping this film's argument. And then I tapped it. Okay, so we got all that out. But now I feel better. I feel better. <laughs> I feel better. Um, so now onto the transcendental part where I found, I tapped into some really smart cookies that really pointed out um, what Ozu was going for, why this film was so important uh, in cinematic history, and uh, how he didn't adhere to any of the rules, which is so important in art uh, that to throw away a lot of these things now, um, but but he knew why he was throwing them away, and he made uh, you know he was making art, and and he was playing with yeah. emotions, and and when you would sit there in these moments, it was intentional, and so on and so forth. Now you could love and hate that, or hate that. Um, I'm not going to judge you for either emotion, but but what I will say is that this was a much better motion picture than I gave it credit for, based on those decisions. Like the guy knew what he was doing. And, uh, yeah. And crushed, you know, for what he was going after. If it's not your cup of tea, fine, fuck it. But you know, I, I just walked away with so much more of an appreciation for all of it. Now, uh, I think that answered one of your questions. Uh, that was like 45 minutes. (laughs) We've, uh, we've, uh, answered a couple questions. Okay, good, good, good. Okay. Let's let's move along. Move along. We'll get to another one. Let's go ahead and jump back into the film so that we can get to another thing and discourse on that for 35 minutes. Rambling Uh, man. If this ends up being a a three hour episode, remember it's a two hour and 20 minute film. So yeah, as long as we come in under two twenty, we're cool. Cool. (laughs) Now we've got this daughter-in-law Noriko and she's arguably one of the film's most altruistic characters, if not the most altruistic character. And after a time jump where we go after the dinner, we're going to talk about that in a sec. They have these very sort of general family chats, right? Hey, how's this person? Have you seen these guys? How are the kids? How's the ankle? Blah, blah, blah. All that stuff that you just sort of very idly talk about with, like you said, the small talk stuff, small talk. right? It's all small talk. Yeah. The grandparents go to bed, and the next morning, the family makes plans to go to a department store. Now, while they're there, they're also going to go to a very nice either lunch or dinner. This is also an interesting aspect of the culture at the time, Ryan, which is that I looked it up because I was like, restaurants in a department store? Apparently, that was very common at the time. Uh, You had a lot of nice restaurants that were inside department stores, and that was just kind of a thing. So in case you were curious about that moment, that's what that's about. Like getting the meatballs at Ikea or something, right? (laughs) yeah a little bit but it was considered it's a little bit step up above from ikea meatballs let's say (laughs) nothing against ikea meatballs i know people love them but you get like 12 of them for as you like to say uh two used condoms and a nickel or two nickels and a used condom i always forget which one is two and one let's let's not throw used condoms metaphors in with ikea meatballs bro you're gonna ruin ikea meatballs (laughs) for everybody People are listening to this at like 8 in the morning. (laughs) Nobody's listening to us at 8 in the morning. They're all drunk at 3 a.m. That's the only reason we get No one listens to us. (laughs) Actually, 
You, listener, you listen to us, and we appreciate you for that. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for joining us on this. Now, the family is interrupted when the dad gets a telegram or a person that arrives to the door and says that, hey, there's a medical emergency. We need you at the office. We, we, we learned then that the father is a doctor and he has to cancel plans for the evening or for the day and go off and take care of his patient. Now, because of this and because of the family dynamics, the family ends up canceling their plans entirely. None of them are going to do anything because dad can't go. And, of course, the kids are pissed and, you know, they kind of throw a little tantrum, go to their rooms. Mom tries to convince them to at least spend some time with grandma. The older of the two kids isn't having it, but the younger one does. They end up going outside, kind of talking with each other. But the grandma finds that it's sort of hard to relate to the kid. And this is ultimately one of the central themes that it's expressed in many different ways throughout this film. And that's the notion of... Let's call it intergenerational breakdown or intergenerational discord, right? This is sort of a moment in history where the traditional family dynamic is starting to break down. And especially when it comes to some of the more traditional rural family dynamics, right, which have historically been very tight-knit. So it used to be very large families. Grandma and grandpa had very close relationships with the grandkids as well as the parents. wasn't uncommon to live together. We're now in post-World War II Tokyo, and this Tokyo is obviously the modern metropolitan bustling city, and there's a lot of change going on socially. This is, again, a reflection of the way that the country is responding to a lot of the events that took place during World War II. And one of the main responses to that is that the youth kind of had this sort of rebellion, right? And so there was a lot of shift away from traditional values and there was a lot more importance put on the sort of individual. Now, the other thing that this kind of indicates is we've got these kids, these very young kids that are very open with their feelings and we've got these older, this elderly couple, the grandparents, who are not open with their feelings at all. They constantly feel, rightfully, feel slighted and not appreciated, but they always just go along, oh, yeah, everything's fine. The smallest of gestures, they go out of their way to effusively praise and appreciate when they probably don't even necessarily deserve to have that happen, you know? So it's very much, like I said, the theme that is explored and reinforced constantly about how there's this sort of breakdown of the traditional family structure. Now, did you have any particular insights on that theme, Ryan, that you thought about over the course of, you know, after watching the film? Yeah, I mean, this is, you're absolutely right. A very, very important thing to to bring into the discussion, and, and you talked about it very briefly, but I'll just drive it home very, very quick and toss it back to you, is that this is eight years removed from the bombing at Nagasaki, where the parents now live. Um, so they're coming to Tokyo from Nagasaki, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, in 1953, the bombing of Nagasaki was in 45. Um, so, uh, eight simple years, not even a decade has gone by since the atomic bomb, uh, has dropped at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so, um, these parents, you know, are from a different era and it's kind of like the passing of the torch, um, you know, metaphorically speaking between pre-war and post-war Japan. And uh, where we're at in the in the culture. And so, um, you know, to your point, Tokyo is now becoming a, you know, they're rebuilding and becoming a bustling metropolis, no longer focused on 
the war and the war efforts and all of that. They're able to focus on their own country and their own self-fulfillment and all of these things. And so what you're getting is a suburban middle class, things that we see here in the States to this very day, things that I think mm -hmm. we could all relate to, um, where... You know, parents want obviously the best for their kids. So you have a little bit of a disappointment scenario in the scene you're describing now where the father realizes his son is not a big, huge, successful uh, doctor. He just works at a like community clinic and does house visits and stuff. Um, but that keeps him busy. And it's, um, you know, very important to him and his family. And he's living in Tokyo in a suburb. I think they even ask, like, where in Tokyo are we? And they say, I think we're in the suburbs. And they're like, oh, yeah, that feels right. And they're kind of disappointed that he's not, like, more in the mix. So yeah. um, there's a little bit of disappointment on the fan on the, the parent side um, that I took away from sure. this. Um, oh, there's a lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They just kind of wished. They thought they were coming to the big city to see their big city tycoon son. And then they kind of get there, and it's like the suburbs of such. And it's... You know, it doesn't have all the pomp and circumstance, I think, that they were expecting. Um, and rather than red carpets and, and uh, all the pizzazz, um, they're relegated to the guest room upstairs and just kind of like in the way. And they're always kind of being dismissed uh, in favor of the daily activities of this, uh, you know, couple and, and the uh, other siblings. So, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's a lot of this. So, you yes. know, if, if yeah. you stop and ask me like, what did you think about this scene? Or what did you think about that scene? I'm inclined to give you a lot of the same answers um, because of how I felt watching this film. It's very monotonous. And again, doing the post work uh, and prep for this show, you start to realize these are very, very intentional decisions. And he's, you know, kind of uh, numbing your brain, so to speak, so that you're more receptive to what he wants to give you and, and, and the <laughs> themes he wants to feed you, which is fantastic. And I, you know, I've grown to appreciate that after the fact. But in the moment, oh man, yeah. dude, like brain numbing is not, you know, you're going through <laughs> surgery here and he's doing some work on your num on your numb skull. So, uh yeah. it's a thing. You know, you go through a thing. And to your point from earlier, you know, the discourse around the film doesn't set that up. It makes it seem like it's going to be this captivating emotional right film that you're just going to be locked into the entire time. And it's, it's not, it's a very passive viewing experience. You know, you're just sort of letting things wash over you. I thought I was going into 1953 Japan's portrait of a lady on fire. That's what I thought I was going to watch. I, I thought, thought I, I thought I was getting mid early fifties, Japanese American beauty. Okay, perfect. That too. I'll give you that. Yeah. Something by Sam Mendes or, you know, something along those lines. Yeah. Great. I thought that that's what I was walking into. I was not. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is like nothing I've ever seen. And then it's, you know, when yeah. you get the dialogue delivered straight to camera and there's like these big pauses between deliveries of said dialogue and the, uh, the, the mother is delivering her lines to camera with a big smile on her face, even though the lines are fairly powerful at times and quite depressing um you know when yeah. she's being dismissed and she's relegated upstairs with the father for example and they're discussing like the the situation they're put in or their children or how they're being dismissed or what they should do tomorrow um and you know they're totally being shit on because you're seeing the other side of that conversation downstairs from the kids and how like you said they're being given the substandard meat and don't spend so much money on them and blah 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 and why are you doing that they'll be gone in two days yeah. like, let's just get this over with kind of mentality and then you go upstairs and hear the mother delivering these lines about how she despite all of that and knowing some of that um, they're recognizing some of these things as we, the movie goes along she's still delivering these lines with a sweeping smile on her face 
um, which was kind of off-putting at times because it's like what you're saying and how you're emoting are two different things altogether. Did you take away any of that or did you see any of that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably reflective of both the age and the culture, right? Because again, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on Japanese culture, but I've seen enough films that I feel like I've, you know, kind of pick up on things. We research them, et cetera. And the one sort of constant that you hear about is the sort of unfailing politeness, right? Especially when it comes to uh, elders back and forth, right? So I think there's an element of that where that's the expected behavior is they're just supposed to constantly be grateful even where they're not, which also instills in us, especially Western audiences, an additional element of sympathy for the characters themselves. Sure. Now, what I'd like to throw out there, because it's easy to look at this through the lens of the children are not respecting their parents as much as they should. And I think that that's the case throughout the film. However, there is one aspect of culture at the time that I'd like to bring up that does perhaps maybe give them a little bit of sympathy or at least justify their attitudes. And that is that post-World War II, Japan inhabited a much different mentality when it came to work and economic output. And especially with regards to like the self and what we here in the States now would call work-life balance, right? And that was essentially that you have to sacrifice your personal well-being for economic success, both the success of the country as a whole as well as your own personal success. And so it was after the war that they instituted the six-day work week, which also meant that they instituted the six-day school week. So you now have a culture that is eight years removed from instituting, you know, a 20% right weekly increase in the amount of time you have to work. You now get one day off a week from work. And so when you hear these, I guess we'll call them the children, right? But it's the sort of middle generation, right? And they're talking about, oh, I'm too busy to take the parents out and I'm too busy, this and that. It's very easy to be critical of them. But look, take a step back. If I was working six days a week and I was an entrepreneur and not a particularly successful entrepreneur, like it would be a lot harder to have to, you know, go on my one day off and and, and take the parents out and show them a good time. Like I'm tired. I just want to rest. I'm right. working six days a week, 12 hours a day. I'm beat. You know, I just want to sit here, watch TV, have a beer, whatever it is. Right. So I do think it's important to remember that like. They kind of introduced – they're the original like hustle and grind mentality, right? All those goddamn YouTubers who are talking about working 16-hour days and everything needs to become a revenue stream. That's what's being input into the social mindset at the time. Sure. So just to give them a little bit of pathos or sympathy, we do kind of need to remember that that was the social mentality and expectation at the time. And it could have even been that the parents put that pressure on them, right? And this is kind of like, ah – you know, maybe we shouldn't have focused on that so much. Maybe we should have. We, we don't know. There's a lot that is left unsaid and unspoken about that. Yeah, I think it's something that's, you know, we're definitely coming to terms with now in our generation currently um, in today's day and age is just the importance of the rat race. As the American dream moves further and further away from this next generation is buying a house uh, is harder. You know, you can't just, you know everything's an investment. You know, you always, you have to have millions of dollars to retire now. So retirement is pushed further and further away from all of us. Um, you know, there was a time when these things that you're talking about, these cultural institutions of this six day work week was for a reason, you know, uh, chicken in every pod, car in every garage and all of that shit. Right. Like the, Mm -hmm. the American dream was not universal to America. Everybody wants that. 
uh, level of suburban success. And so much as the you sure. own your home, you have a car, you retire at 50, you know, you raise children, they have children, you get married, blah, blah, blah. We all live happily ever after. And, uh, you know, hopefully die in our beds with our family around us lovingly, blah, blah, blah. Um, and sure. so as that you know, finish line or goalpost as we've moved the goalpost, so to speak. And this next generation, I think that uh, there's a lot of cultural questioning, you know, uh, again, going back to the first thing I said on the show, you know, you got some splitting to do uh, for the, the previous generation that sold us all a bill of goods because, you know, now college, co- you know, university to get a degree costs hundreds of thousands of dollars with interest and compounding over time. And you look at these people mm-hmm. that have been paying college debts for 10 years and still owe the same amount of principal and all these horror stories. So, yeah. And then the lack of understanding from one generation to the next because of the cultural divide. I know that. You know, when I try to explain some of these uh, cultural differences to my parents, they don't understand. They think you work hard, you get rewarded for the work, you retire, you have investments. Like, they don't understand that the world has changed and that these new requirements, uh, you know, we have to now adapt to what's around us um, because yeah. you're not going to retire at 50 anymore. Um, you may not get married. You know, uh, people end up single all the time. That was such a. Uh, an established thing. Uh, and that is even addressed in this film. You know, they have the one daughter that won't remarry yeah. and they're They're trying to institute that she remarries and that it's okay because their son has died in the war. We didn't mention that one of their uh, sons had died in the war a few years prior and um, all the more importance and emotion put on these uh, elderly parents as they go back to see their living kin and they want to, you know, reconnect with their children. They haven't seen and see their grandchildren and so on. Um, so, uh, I'm kind of rambling here, but but I do think all of this is very pertinent and and present way back in 1953 and these cultural things that were going on then. We're now kind of seeing the other end of that uh, Tokyo story here um, in America locally. I think all that is it resonates just as much today as it did back then. Um, and then, you know, you kind of have to hold a mirror up to to society and say, why? You know, why are we all too busy for the for relationships and love and friendships? And then you remove yourself even more with with not making the phone calls anymore. Everything's done through text. You're not seeing yeah. people anymore. You know, it's all done through Zoom and, and uh, you know, relegating yourself into the home and, and pulling back further and further um, from, you know, what just was a few years ago, very social norms. Um, and I think that's uh, taking the conversation full circle and getting back to this film. I think that you're seeing mm-hmm. a lot of that, uh, you know, uh, bookended on the other side where we were just instituting the these promises of, retirement and all these things from the previous generations working in the farms and working with your hands and creating. Now it's more, uh, you know, we're moving into these cities and being suburban and, and contributing as a community and so forth. Like you're saying, it's interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And one thing I'd like to do real quick too, is just to clarify the family dynamic for anyone that didn't come away exactly knowing what was what. Cause I know I didn't, it took me a minute. So in essence, we've got five kids, that the elderly couple has. One of them has passed away in the war and it's his wife, their daughter-in-law that they have a lot of the more tender moments of the film, right? She's the one that really shows them a lot of love. That's Noriko. And then we've got the, we've got two sons, the one who's a doctor and the other who is an employee of a train station or something like that. 
Uh, and then we've got two other daughters. The first is Kyoko, who lives with them back home and takes care of them. And then we've also got Shige, who is the shitty one who owns a hair salon. <laughs> so that's kind of the family dynamic there. That, and then, you know, they've got some kids, of course, and whatnot. And In-laws, uh, you know, the, my marriage and stuff like that. Correct, yeah. Now, as far as the film's concerned, at this point, the couple goes to visit Shige, and his husband actually brings home some very expensive cakes to greet them. She basically chastises her husband for spending too much money. You know, some, some muffins or crackers or something would have been fine. And then convinces him that they should eat the cakes themselves and not bring them upstairs to their parents. And so they do. And it's like, Jesus Christ, man. Like, right. Shige, just give your, give your parents a little bit of something here, man. Like, they don't really seem like such bad people. I know you're seemingly pissed off because your mom was a little overweight and broke a chair when you were in high school. But get over it, dude. Yeah, now, it's you know there's a fine line here that that gets crossed from time to time between neglect and uh, and just being downright mean, and so that's where yeah. the film I think if if I was going to criticize this film in one way, aside from the pacing and and just being very dry in its delivery, uh, you know, albeit intentionally so, I would say that uh, when it crosses the threshold into uh, from being insensitive or being busy and not taking the time to see your family and being caught up in the rat race, everything we've discussed so far up to this point, every now and then it does cross those thresholds into being downright nasty. And the, and this is one yeah. of those moments that you're describing. And I thought that was maybe the only thing that I think this movie kind of failed on because it took me out of it in that regard where it's like, that's not... That's not what we're doing here, right? Or is it? You know, are are we are these people just down? They're capable of being mean to loving people. Like it just seemed like a you're crossing a bit of a threshold on those characters. Did did you have a same? Did that resonate the same with you at all, or not so much? I think no. So it it, it really didn't, and I think it's more because I believe it's in there to show their selfishness. Okay, I don't think I think they're so internally focused. And so self-centered that they don't consider the people around them. Almost like she was like a single child. Not that every single child comes that way, but like the traditional like spoiled single child that can't really understand that there's like other people and dynamics and things of that nature. Sure. So there's an element of that that I think is because from there it's juxtaposed immediately with the kindness shown from – uh, the what is it, Noriko, right? The yes. uh, daughter, the daughter-in-law, and so basically, Shige is like, "Hey, I don't have time for these people right now." Her parents, right? Uh, can you take them out, show them a good time? She's like, "Yeah, of course," and she does, and she takes them out, and they go and see, you know, lovely parks and see all these, you know, they go to different department stores and see these different landmarks, and she basically just shows them a good time, even though she really doesn't have any money. And then that's where they go back to her house afterwards. And she even borrows some sake for her neighbor and serves it to them. And it's just being a gracious host the way that the kids should be doing, but they're not. And it's also interesting to note real quick, by the way, for anyone that is maybe a little bit confused with regards to the son being a doctor. Apparently it was the case that at the time doctors weren't immediately financially successful. So you could be a doctor that worked crazy hours and still be struggling to make ends meet. And so he is a an unsuccessful doctor, which is why you hear them discussing trying to save money and why he's so stingy with getting them good meat and things of that nature. Did just want to clarify that real quick. But I think that the most interesting aspect of Ozu's filmmaking that we haven't really touched on yet is his creative decisions – which were actually described in some of my research. I don't know if you came across this term that he employs 
what some critics refer to as narrative ellipses. Did you come across that term at all? I did. Yeah. And so this is very interesting because basically what it says is that where a lot of films would build up to a significant event or a significant discussion, right? We spend 20 minutes talking about the upcoming dinner. Then we're going to have a 10 to 15 minute scene at least of the dinner and we're going to see what happens, right? Ozu doesn't do that. Ozu's going to jump right over the dinner. He's still going to build it up for 20 minutes and then he's going to jump over it and we're going to be in, in, in an immediate cut on the other side of it, talking about what just happened, right? This happens with regards to the grandparents leaving for Tokyo. We don't see them moving. We don't see the table. Uh, we don't see the dinner at the table. There's right. a lot of stuff that we don't see. And that's because to your point from earlier, Ozu wanted to, you know, he, he basically was like, look, all, all of those melodramatic aspects that we've come to know as being quote cinematic in Western cinema, that's all been done. That's out there. You know, I mean, I'm, interested in exploring what happens after the big blow up moment, right? What happens after the big conversation? How are these people feeling in the spaces between the larger events? Well, and let's that's talk a very about interesting take, you know, it's not something that's explored a lot. And so it, it creates a unique experience. Tell me well, about it. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a second, because when you say Ozu is making these decisions because all this has been done already, uh, you know, let's not forget this is 1953. I had to do a little research here, but uh, you know, we're predating uh, French New Wave cinema even by uh, several years. So, you know, the 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 standards by which you know we're judging this film, he made this on a different platform. If that makes sense, the the rules were a little I different. I mean, yes and no, because he also had been making films for 30 years or something at this point, like filmmaking had been around for decades at that yeah, point. Yeah, he started like in the silent of cinema. cinema. And then yeah, he was exactly. hired by the Japanese government to make propaganda films during the war, um, which he resisted. And uh, actually, if my research is correct, he even faked tuberculosis at one point and was sent to Singapore. So, um, you know, to get out of doing that. Uh, and then he got back into filmmaking um, after the war. But um, yeah, I, I, I mean, because that was the first thing that I thought about. Uh, I think I know... I forget what film it was, if it was Sweet Smell of Success or uh, something. But um, uh, there was a film we discussed recently where where the idea of uh, French neorealism uh, and French new wave cinema had come up in, in discussion. And so it was fresh on my sure. mind. And, and I was researching because that's what this felt like to me. This felt like uh, kind of like a, a French new wave film of sorts, but from a Japanese perspective. Yeah. And he was kind well, of inventing some of those modalities uh, a decade prior to when some of the most famous versions of these things were impact I impactful to to filmmakers. So, um, yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, no, I think it's a fair comparison to the to the French New Wave because in both instances you have filmmakers that are responding to what has become established in popular cinema at the time, right? So French New Wave was the same way. It's like, hey, cinema is all huge bombast. It's carried over from vaudeville. It's carried over from the theater. And so everything is big and loud and set pieces. And we want to explore other aspects of life, right? We want to explore the quiet conversations between sure. two people that they have walking down the sidewalk on the way to go, you know, pull off a bank heist, right? right kind of doing what right. Tarantino would do many, many years later. And so, but again, you know, none of this whether you're Ozu or whether you're Godard, I don't think this style of filmmaking happens uh, 
unless you have the established filmmaking styles because, again, That's they're fair. direct responses to that, and they intentionally say, we're going to do this differently. That's fair. I'll give you that much. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take what I can get around here. Yes. I also think it's funny that Ozu considers this film his most melodramatic. I'm sure you saw that. I did not actually. No. <laughs> he says of all his films, it's his most melodramatic and features the strongest narrative drive. He's actually on record as saying that. So oh boy. his other films are like, and, and you know, and, and this is Ambient kind of something fest. that I thought was interesting is kind of carrying over from the conversation of looking at film differently. I think that he was kind of one of the OG, like what's the, I guess sort of the fictional filmmakers that brought documentary realism to their proceedings, right? We've talked about them all the time. The indie guys, your Harmony Kareens and Davids and all of these sort of guys, right? Sure. Uh, Jim Jarmish, et cetera. You know, these, these sort of like, we're the camera is just going to sort of be a fly on the wall and we're going to see people existing in their everyday lives. And it's not all about these huge designed plot points, right? It's the spaces between those hugely designed plot points. And so this film definitely does that. And from there, Ryan, I wanted to get your take on what you feel kind of now having done your research, right? Initially, I think it's fair that Western audiences would have a response of saying, I know I felt this way, where it's like, where's the emotion, right? Why are we not examining some of the emotional responses to what's going on? Like things are happening, but it doesn't really feel like people are responding. And yet they are. It's just in a very different way than we as Western audiences are accustomed to because we have big scenes, right? We like, look, as, as Americans, we're emotional people, right? There's no element of, Hey, if you're upset, keep it to yourself, right? <laughs> That's not what you see in the news, right? All it is, is just loud displays of public grievances, right? I've been offended. I don't like this. Whatever your proclamation is, there's an idea that it's your right as an American under the umbrella of personal freedom to go out and say this and First Amendment and all of this. And all of that's true, right? Because that's reflective of our culture. But at the same time, you have a Japanese culture that is much less expressive, right? The, the, the emotions tend to be kept within because those are the societal values, right? And we see that in all of the grown-up and adult characters in this film. None of them are honest with the other people about their emotions. The only people that are honest are the children, which actually reminds me of a phrase that I heard growing up that uh, if you ever want true honesty, your only two options are kids and drunks. Kids and drunks <laughs> are the only two people that will be 100% honest with or you drunk at any kids. given point in time. So <laughs> Drunk kids look the hell out. Yeah, like those fucking three babies in the trench coat. So... Uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to disagree with you because I feel like you've got the the parents upstairs are being, um, you know, obscure to themselves because they're blinded by their unjudging love for their children. But then you've got all the children discussing like what you're saying earlier about like, oh, why'd you buy those cakes? Or you should have spent so much money. Like they're being brutally honest. And even so much as like telling the mom she was fat when she was a kid and broke the chair and like, don't give yourself so much credit and blah, blah, blah. Like there's no stoic behavior with these, uh, with their children, the who are adults in their 
30s, perhaps, or late 20s. But I think it's just the Shige character. Like, I don't think that any of the other kids do that. Um, I think yeah, she's just unique in that regard. I guess. I do feel like there are two kind of groupings of, of people here. And I think that, yeah, there, the, the one character definitely is like brutally honest to the point of being mean yeah. at times. But, sure. um, but I don't think that the other characters are so stoic and respectful. Um, otherwise this wouldn't be the movie it is. I think that they, yeah. they are being honest but, in their own ways. But yes? if you look at it though, it's like, well, yeah, but, but I guess what I mean to say is that they're not really, even though they're transparent, they're not being honest with their grandparents themselves, right? Sure. Like they're constantly trying to sort of trick them, right? Like in this upcoming scene. So in the next scene, the parents come up to visit Shige and she's like, oh, I'm too busy. Hey, you know what would be great? Let's send them to a hot springs resort. Yeah, that'll yes. get them out okay. of here, right? And so she's constantly trying to just like get rid of them, so to speak. Now, it ends up being this super sort of raucous and youthful resort. Like the parents can't get any sleep whatsoever to the point that they end up just bailing the next day, which by the way, would totally be me and my wife. It's like, <laughs> it's 10 o'clock. Why are you guys still up and partying? We've got sleep to be had, right? But no, but so she's not like, oh, hey, mom and dad, I hate you being here. I want to get you the hell out of here. I'm sending you to this resort. Please stay there and don't come back because I don't want to see you. Right. She's trying to spin it. Hey, guys, guess what I got for you? Super great vacation. You guys should go to be such a great time. You're going to love it. <laughs> and so she's being manipulative to them because she yeah. doesn't want to have to spend the time with them. So that but now with her other conspirators, they're all honest with each other. But what I'm saying is that, like, neither the grandparents are being honest about their feelings about their kids and their grandparents with, you know, the intergenerational communication, so to speak, to take it back to that concept. Sure, sure. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Uh, my grandparents are coming over tonight and it's my turn to make dinner. What am I going to do? Hey there, I can help. Handy. I appreciate the offer, but I can't make Hamburger Helper again. Not Hamburger, it's Gramburger. Gramburger Helper is the delicious dish. Perfect for when you need to make grandma and grandpa dinner. Sounds great, but I don't have any meat thawed. Don't worry about that. I've got it covered. Whoa, that meat looks fresh. It sure is. Dry aged and imported from Arizona. Wait, our grandparents are from Arab. Gramburger Helper is made with all natural and organic ingredients. And everything comes in a box, so you know it's good. It's so full of flavor, it tastes just like Grandma used to make. Mmm, it kind of smells like Grandma, too. Well, that's because it is. Wait, what? What? Oh, I, I thought you said... Just cook the meat till it's golden brown. Then add in your pasta, cheese, and packet of seasonings, and voila! Grandma's going to be so proud you made her dinner. Okay, everyone, dinner's done. No word from Grandma and Grandpa. I guess they won't make dinner tonight. Something tells me they've already made dinner. What? What? Mmm, this is delicious. Gramburger Helper, the perfect dish to serve your grandparents. Is... is that my mom's wedding ring? Oh, my God. Oh, no. Honey? Oh, no. Oh, my God. Honey, I'm getting my gun. Whoop! 
My job here is done. Time to go. Get over here, you little bastard. I'm going to kill you. You're dead. And now, back to the show. Now, one of the things we also learned, too, is that there are some unspoken of aspects of their past that definitely played into whatever this relationship is. And that's that the father figure was probably a borderline alcoholic. If not, he definitely struggled, had that monkey on his back, which, by the way, I don't know if you saw, but uh, Ozu himself was actually notorious for being a hardcore sake drinker during pre-production, especially when he was writing his scripts. I so saw that. I think a little bit of that like made its way into this uh, father figure character. Yeah, there's there's a bit of a joke that I read online that basically states that he would judge each film by how many bottles of sake he they went through when he was writing the <laughs> script. So it's like this is a 48 bottle movie or this is a 102 bottle movie, and they would uh, measure it as such. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we see, you know, so basically they come back from the hot springs, and Shige doesn't want anything to do with them, so she makes them leave again. They are going to go to Noriko's house, their daughter-in-law, who's always been so accommodating. But she doesn't have a big enough house to house both of them. So the mom is going to stay with her and the dad is going to see this old friend of his. Now, it turns out that his old friend is a bit of a drinker, as he is. So they go out and they get plastered. And they're having a good old time at this bar, maybe being a little inappropriate with one of the waitresses, at least the friend is. But it also brings about a particular aspect of the film that I think thematically definitely relates to what you said about this being a sort of transcendental film. And that's this concept of what, you know, a psychologist or a therapist might refer to as radical acceptance, right? And this is the idea that even if something is so far beyond your comprehension or outside of your personal value system, you recognize that it is an uncontrollable facet of the world, right? It is something that exists that you cannot change about the world at large, society as it is, people as a whole and their responses to whatever it is, right? You're not okay with it, but you're okay with it. You learn to be okay with it, even though it feels so hard to do so because it's so strongly against what you personally represent. And I think we see that in this scene where they get drunk and then they kind of start talking shit about their kids. But then the friend, Mr. Hattori, I believe it is, he's like, really upset with his kid or not upset, but disappointed in his kid. He legitimately thinks he's pretty much a piece of shit and says as much. And then that's when Shukiji, Shukiji, ugh, I, I butcher his name all the time. Uh, that's when our, our, our main father figure, the grandparent, he basically is like, Hey, let's pump the brakes a little bit. Right. Our kids aren't so bad. And your kid isn't really that bad as you say. And my kid isn't that bad as I say. And it's kind of natural for us to be disappointed in our kids because we expect so much out of them. But at the end of the day, they're really not that bad, but then also at the end of the day, they kind of are, right? And there's not really too much we can do about that. Our kids have some great things about them. They have some super disappointing things about them, but we got to love them. We can't change our family. They are who we are. We helped raise them, and we just got to accept them for who they are. This uh, sounds like you're talking about your cats. <laughs> I love my cats. They're beautiful beasts. Yeah, and they get away with everything. They're so and they get away with everything. They're not so bad. They're not as bad as I. <laughs> it's like, Should God they lay on my keyboard and deleted my? They can't uh, live here anymore. I'm not going to be able to put up with this. Two seconds later, oh, they're so adorable. Look at them sleep. Oh. <laughs> yes, uh, every every six months, I become closer and closer to becoming a crazy cat lady. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty nuts. 
Meanwhile, they're like, you should go to the spa. You should go out and go do stuff so we can have the house to ourselves. You know, oh. just have a nice day on the town. Dude, you would not believe how needy my cats are. I have the neediest ass cats, dude. The whole thing about like cats being happy that you're gone and having the house to themselves. My cats want nothing to do with having the cats to the, to the house to themselves. If I step outside <laughs> without them, Old boy Oliver sits there at the back door and yowls his damn head off. All fucking day long, dude. They just woke up. They're actually right here next to me. They both just gave me the biggest like, what the hell are you doing, bro? You woke us up. Look. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, so as far as keeping you from them, we should uh, button this up. (laughs) (laughs) So the dad and the friend show back up to Shige's house. They're escorted by a cop. And they are wasted. And again, it's it's she's obviously very upset. She's nagging them. Why are you doing this? Blah, blah, blah. But again, it's also important to remember that there may be some family trauma as a result of his drinking that is factoring into this moment. Right. We don't know what happened when they were younger and when he was drinking a lot more than he did or than he is now. Rather Then at this point, the grandparents kind of look to each other and they're like, you know what? This is not as much fun as I thought it was. Kids are kind of shitty, not having a good time. We're just getting bounced around here and there. What do you say? Want to bail? Want to go back home? Yeah, let's go back home. And so the kids are like, hey, you know what? If you could just take us back to the train station, that'd be great. We're going to go ahead and peace out. And then when they get there, I thought it was very interesting that the mom kind of has like this breakup talk with them. Now, I suppose on the one hand, you could chalk it up to maybe that she knows she's getting sick, right? Because we haven't really mentioned this is where the mom's, you know, there's been some foreshadowing that she's not all super healthy and she's going to get very sick on the train here in a minute. And this could very easily be a response to that, a sort of internal understanding that maybe her time is coming to an end. But I didn't see it that way. I saw it as a breakup conversation. And she's basically like, hey, guys, so. We're going to go ahead and go back home and uh, just want to let you know, you know what? This was a great time. I don't think we need to do this again. It was such a good time (laughs) that why don't we just leave it as this? You know, you guys might think, hey, let's go out and visit mom and dad. Don't No, This was so much fun. Let's just leave it as this and never visit each other again. What do you say? And they're like, "Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess. You know, they're like, well, this certainly seems like what you asked for. So, uh, yeah, because it was around this time, too, I think right before that, that uh, the kids were kind of patting themselves on the back uh, about what a good job they did. Like they sent them to the spa. (laughs) They sent them on a tour because like I think one of them brings up like, man, I wish we had spent more time with them. They're like, why? They did. They had this rock star trip, dude. They had to be so appreciative. They come from bumfuck farm town in Nowheresville. And uh, they're in the big city and like we sent them on this big city thing. And it's like when all they wanted to do was spend time with you and like have time with you and see you and see their grandchildren. Um, And you're like, you know, crediting yourself for like the the points you should get for for, you know, like you said, sending them to the day spa. And they at one point, I think they went on this trip around Tokyo and and uh, saw some of the uh, sites around there and all the things that the big city has to offer um, when none of that really mattered to them. So it was this really kind of a a difference in opinion on the same situation, two sides of the same coin, you know? And uh, meanwhile, like you said, the grandma's like, uh, yeah, uh, thanks, but no thanks. This will probably be the last time I come here. So appreciate Charles. Going to leave. Yep. Yeah. And then we get another of Ozu's infamous narrative ellipses as very shortly thereafter, we learn through telling that I believe it's the Kaizo character. I forget which uh, son works for the, 
train station, but he shows up to work and is basically like, hey, sorry about yesterday. Sorry I had to call out. Uh, turns out my mom got really sick on the train and she had to get off and stay with me for a minute. Yeah, that was really weird because in a normal yeah. narrative film, you would have expected to have seen some of that. <laughs> Not just like <laughs> having talked about, you know, this is, uh, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, we'll call it Chekhov's dinner scene or Chekhov's dinner table <laughs> where it's the dinner table that gets uh, trumped up and talked and about. and didn't, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> it didn't happen until we say it happened, but did it really? Yeah, yeah we'll show you the gun, <laughs> but uh, we'll never use it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and... This is, again, you know, sort of one of those aspects of Ozu not wanting to show you the big melodramatic moment because everybody else is going to show you that moment. We're going to look at the aftermath of that. And they end up sending out telegrams to all of the different kids saying, hey, you know, mom is sick. It doesn't look like she's going to make it. You might want to get over here. They're back home at this point and, you know, say your goodbyes and whatnot, spend time with her. And all of the kids make it except for the uh, youngest son who ends up showing up late. And yeah, to your point, none of the kids really feel like they're that upset about it at the end of the day. They like there's a there's a brief moment where of all people, Shige kind of breaks down and is like, oh, I'm so sad. But she's over it very quickly and is basically like, hey, now that she's dead, uh, did you bring your funeral clothes? You didn't. How dare you? Blah, 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 blah. So she kind of just moves on. Yeah, right we're back quick. to the day to day grind. Yeah, and Noriko is kind of the only one who's, like, really sort of been out of shape about her passing. She sticks around for maybe, I think it's like a week or so to just kind of help the father figure settle his affairs. And he thanks her very much for being gracious and gives her Tomi's watch in gratitude, which kind of sets up one of the final shots. And when the film ends, again, it's sort of that book-ended presentation where we see the children walking to school. Now we also hear the children singing and that's at the same time that Noriko is on a bus and she sort of opens up the watch and looks at it and has a sort of realization. And we've also got the dad sitting alone back home, kind of like at the start of the film, we've got the trains going across the land, the boats going across the water. And again, all of this is to sort of reinforce this general theme that life is both cyclical Right. It just sort of goes on a never ending loop, but that it's also constantly transitory. And I think that's really yes. the one thing that we didn't go into too much, which is that the the film's central thesis really is designed about that. Yeah. How life is constantly changing. It's constantly in motion. We see that very dramatically in adolescence. Right. Where we literally go through a metamorphosis of size, shape, understanding, personality, et cetera. But even beyond that, we transition into adulthood and then from adulthood into late adulthood. And along the way, society is evolving too, right? Based on these hugely impactful events like world wars, but also just some of the smaller events that happen along the way with regards to career choices and things of that nature. But all of this is to really drive home the point that transitioning to different stages of life and the family dynamics that come with it and the changing nature of society and youth and death and birth and all of that. Yeah. It's a cycle to be appreciated, right? And that's kind of what it all comes back to is that radical acceptance in the bar of, you know what, this is the way things are and like it or not, we just have to be okay with it. I mean, all throughout, it's kind of the unstoppable passage of time, right? It's like from the yes. opening shot of, uh, you know, using static shots uh, for starters and letting things pass in and out of them 
from that spectator's point of view of deep space, you know, three or four doors down sometimes looking down a corridor, um, you're, you're spectating these things without any control over them. You're not interacting with them. Um, you know, you're watching these people kind of come and go. Uh, the, the film opens with a static shot of a ship traveling across the water. Um, you don't follow the ship. The camera does not pan. The ship moves out of frame and you're stuck there without it. Uh, and then the, sh- and the film ends with the watch and the direct passage of time. You're dealing with multi-generations of the same family, the ch- uh, grandchildren, children and parents. Um, so, yeah, this is kind of an ongoing theme of like, you can't stop this train rolling, you know? Uh, it's just gonna leave you behind and we'll all meet the same fate one day you know it ends with the the death of the the mother and and so uh stark reminder of reality of um you know enjoy life in these moments because uh that's that's all you got and fuck the small talk you know <laughs> because it's boring Absolutely. and he showed you that for two and a half hours you know he's like yeah see how boring this is don't fucking do this to your parents call your mom that was what i took from this (laughs) absolutely absolutely that has been our analysis of tokyo story hopefully you all found it enlightening and fun and real quick before we do wrap things up do want to remind you to please go out there rate review and subscribe to our show if you're not already it really helps us out and we appreciate it very much As always, we are going to wrap up by giving you first our three adjectives followed by our formal rating. Ryan, I would love to hear what your three adjectives are for Tokyo Story. (laughs) I'm sure you would, buddy. Uh, These have (laughs) changed. Yeah. So this is is a momentous occasion, my friend. This is the first time that I could think of that uh, on my own accord, I have changed my grade uh, from... Oh, wow. When I viewed the film, I gave it a rating that was not very... Uh, flattering to the film and then uh, upon doing some research and like sitting on this and thinking about it uh, I, I up my my grade now we're not we're not blowing the doors off here I'm not gonna give this like uh, <laughs> a BFI sight and sound number one film of all time score but uh, yeah uh, my, my three adjectives we'll start with that growth for personal reasons I personally grew as a person watching this and learned a lot about cinema and the things and stuff I feel better now that um, that I didn't just uh, walk away from the the experience and say fuck that movie um, I actually took the time to uh, think about why I wanted to fuck that movie and then I started to <laughs> stew on that and I was like you know what maybe not I- I'm I'm bigger than this Ron- you Brian you're bigger than this. And I, I, I grew from this. So growth. Uh, the second Love one beer. is molasses because this film is slow as fuck. Um, you gotta <laughs> be ready for that, man. Like, uh, you know, if you got, um, some Ambien or, or, uh, Valium <laughs> or smoke your stuff or whatever you got to do to like grab a wine, whatever you do to relax, like just settle in and know that this ain't Kurosawa, baby. Uh, this is a um, long-standing procedural that is just going to hold a mirror up to you and say, look at it. No, look at it. No, what do you see? Look at it. And you're like, oh, I don't know, man. And you start crying and thinking of your mom. So yeah, just <laughs> molasses. <laughs> and then my last one is mathematical because this is a um, experiment in math and geometry. Uh, the cinematography, the lighting, the staging, all of it. Uh, this is not, as we stated earlier, uh, high art uh, in the sense of 
poetry. This is haiku and that sort of art and all of that. So this is uh, like kanjis or calligraphy or, or something like that, where it's very specific and abbreviated. You got the uh, the Chekhov's dinner table that we discussed. You got the uh, ellipses scenes where they dot, dot, dot their way out of shit. This is not your standard, you know, the, the center frame conversation where they're looking directly down the barrel of the lens. Um, very, very off-putting, very odd. Uh, this is not your standard theatrical performance. This is mathematical. But it's very precise and calculated, and I appreciate it for that. Uh, Jason, how about you, buddy? All right, so for today, I went with some hyphenated ones. First one, carrying over from your slow comment, glacially paced. This is not a film where <laughs> nice. you're going to go anywhere quick. Just sit back, float slowly along the river, the ocean, wherever the hell glaciers are. And uh, you'll, 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 I'm not going to say you're going to enjoy your experience, but you will have the desired experience that was intended to be had. The second is aggressively matter of fact. Now, this is both with regards to the performances, the writing, the direction, the cinematography. Everything is just presented as it is. No zhuzh, no sauce, no pizzazz, letting all the ingredients speak for themselves. And my third is subtly effective. Emphasis on the subtly. It's very – it's one of those films that, again, I, I – feel like I should have been bored. I should have been upset when I walked out of that. And yet I wasn't like I, but like I said, at the top of the show, it's like floating in a sensory deprivation tank. You just kind of are huh. there and it's very sort of meditative and it ended up sticking with me. You know, the more days that passed, the higher the opinion on the film that I had. So glacially paced, aggressively matter of fact and subtly effective. Ryan, I don't know if you just want to give one score or both scores, but let's see what you got. So, yeah, I mean, I kind of had a, diff I, I had a different experience than you where I was bored as fucking shit when I watched this movie. But then the <laughs> next day, um, I wanted to watch this movie again. And I will watch this movie again. I'm telling you. Yeah, same. Um, I, I was torn even when I was watching it. You know, the cinematography. I was looking at those corridor shots and how they were framed and lit. And I'm like, this is, you know, the fact that he would just let you sit in those scenes sometimes on the same shot for minutes at a time felt like an eternity. And it's like... Dude, in the moment, I was thinking this is beautiful and so creative and so artistic and just amazing to look at. And yet I just want to leave. Like, let me leave, please. Give me a cut <laughs> or an edit. Like, it's it's so uncomfortable sitting there. And so, um, you know, I almost felt like uh, that the character from Clockwork Orange where my eyes were like pinned open, you know, and I'm watching this beauty, beauty shit. So, um, yeah, I started off hating this. I did not like the experience at all. Um, and I gave it a solid D um, because of just how I felt when I left and, and sure. how bored I was throughout. Uh, I have ramped that up, believe it or not, to a C plus, which I know is not like nice. high scores here. But uh, when you're coming off a D experience um, and you just wanted to never speak of this film again, thinking, how am I going to talk to Jason about this the next day? Um, you know, C plus, I really enjoy this movie and I'll tell you what, not only would I watch this again, um, I am going to go and watch his other films. I don't know. We didn't talk about this and I don't know if you knew this, but this is actually a part of a trilogy, um, based on this character, Noriko. Oh, wow. It's called the Noriko trilogy. Okay. And, uh, his first film was in 49 called late spring followed by early summer. And, uh, the last in the trilogy is Tokyo story. So we're kind of watching the good, the bad and the ugly of the, 
Nameless Man trilogy, so to speak. <laughs> uh, but it all covers this character, Noriko, in different phases of her life. Um, and it all stars the exact same actors, uh, for the most part, including the mother and father, etc. Um, and it deals in, with love and loneliness and the suburban grind and all these things from various angles. So, um, yeah, I will watch those at some point. <laughs> but not today. <laughs> Jason, how about you, buddy? What's your score? <laughs> yeah, this was definitely one of the harder ratings. I feel like there's been a couple of really difficult ratings uh, this this season, just like with regards to Sweet Smell of Success. Films mm-hmm. that have a lot to offer, but also a lot of reasons for me not to necessarily like it. And where do you fall on a rating when maybe you respect something more than you enjoy it, right? That's kind of always the thing that I have to struggle with. So because like here's the thing is it, it like I'm not giving this film five stars. But if you wanted to argue that it's a five star film, I, I could sign off on that. Right. There, there are certain things where it's just like, nah, go fuck yourself, dude. That's dumb. Blah, blah, blah. This and that. Like I do understand the appeal of this film. I would disagree with you. But at the same time, I have to remember that like the experience in and of itself isn't necessarily a captivating or enjoyable one. Not that cinema always needs to be just enjoyable, but it should be engaging. And I can tell you that I believe that I will watch this film again, probably even more than once. And I believe my rating will increase over time. But for now, what I have settled on is three and three quarters out of five stars. Cool. And I think that this is, yeah, I think that this is a film that everybody needs to see. But I also think that if we were to just come out and say, oh, this is five stars on this film, we're only contributing to that what I would call inauthentic or inaccurate discourse, right, where everybody's so far up this film's ass that it's creating an impression that the film is something that it's not. Correct. Which then sets the incorrect expectation. I think that if I had a different expectation going into it, that maybe my final – Maybe my final rating would be a little bit higher even because it wouldn't have been like built up to such this insane degree. But I don't know. It's again, it's a really, really unique experience. It's not really like anything else. But I I could easily see that score climbing up to a solid four stars in a couple of years. And as we've discussed, too, look, I'm sure this film hits a lot differently when you are a little older, right? And maybe you do have grandparents and you're experiencing some of these things that they're going through, right? Like Ryan, like you're, you don't have kids. Like my kid's a teenager. Like these aren't things, these aren't feelings that we are going to necessarily, we can understand them, but we don't understand them to our essence the way that like somebody who actually receives that lack of respect does. Right. So I could also see this being something where as I age and as we age, it definitely colors the way that the film is viewed, and I could see growing an even stronger appreciation for it later on. Yeah, I mean, it's always something that I wish there was more of, you know, uh, and I talked about this earlier just in the sense that, you know, this generation, I think, is learning that, that personal, you know, we'll, we'll take this thing full circle, you know, I think hopefully in society, just like when the, the next generation starts to realize that these personal encounters are important. Um, more so than the daily grind, because that's just a treadmill that gets you nowhere, uh, except for to the grave, as old Graham Graham made it to in Tokyo story. So, uh, yeah, this is why I like this show, man. Um, You know, we're so inundated with 
uh, content now. It's just like every time I turn around, there's something new coming out. There's a movie I have to see or a show I need to watch. I'm all backed up on shit. I love, love, love this podcast. Be- for, for the last three seasons, uh, has given me a reason to stop what I'm doing and watch things like this movie um, or Sweet Smell of Success or Critters or RoboCop or any number of films that I wouldn't stop to watch. And uh, so I just uh, thank you for having me. And and um, I regret nothing uh, watching this movie. And, um, <laughs> and having learned everything about it that I did, uh, I cannot wait to go back and watch maybe not this specific one again, but one of his other films, just knowing yeah. what I know about Ozu and his stylings. Um, I, he's even got some color pictures uh, that he's made, you know, down the way um, that I right, like to see yeah. his use of color uh, and and that cinematography and all of that. So, uh, yeah, um, C plus and I stand by it, man. Uh, and like you said, uh, uh, that'll probably raise over time. Absolutely. Now, do want to remind you all that if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so on the different socials. We are on Instagram and Twitter at Esoterica Cinema. You can also Hit us up on email, esotericacinema at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought about this episode. Let us know what you thought about the film. As always, we would love to hear about your muffin-related stories. Maybe you're enjoying a nice chocolate muffin right now. You really want to tell somebody about it, but you don't have any way to do so. You can write us, esotericacinema at gmail.com. And then, of course, we have the Esoterica Cinema Hotline. Now, this can be for anything under the sun. And if you do call us, we will make sure to get you in on an episode. That number, 818-483-6285. Call us. Let us know what you think about the show, about us, or about any of the films that we have or have not looked at. And then, of course, you can go to our website. Our website is looking pristine these days. Got a nice refresh. Got some very cool images up. Got our new logo up, which if you haven't seen it yet, be sure to check it out. Got a great web player on there. And then, of course, you can access the master list where we show you all 200 films that we choose from at the end of every episode. And in the spirit of that, we are going to do so right now. Ryan, it is time to pull our next film that we are going to look at right here on Esoterica Cinema. Ooh, pull it. Pull it, Jason. Pull that (laughs) film. (laughs) Pull the string. Pull the string. (laughs) <laughs> if you under, if you got that reference you are our people and we love we you. call this master listing just master listing <laughs> yes go for it okay uh let's come over here so we've got our one through 200 random.org true random number generator if you are not in the car listening to this go ahead and go to the website pull up that master list you can play along and we're going to see one through 200 what comes about The number for this week's film is 156. So I want you all to go to your list and go to numbers 156. Oh, Ryan. Ryan is so chubbed up right now. Ryan Ryan just got the biggest erection of his life right now. He is so happy that this is the film that we pulled. It is not number 155, which is The Hidden, 1987's The Hidden, which I'll be honest, I don't even really remember what that film is. Uh, so if you do, please, by all means, call in and let us know if it's any good. It's not 157 Angley's The Ice Storm, which we never got to. It is the classic Coen Brothers film, 
the, the Hudsucker Proxy. proxy. Chubbed up, you say? I'll, t- I'll tell you what, this movie's made of flubber. Bouncy as a rubber ball, that is. <laughs> we oh, actually referenced this film on the Sweet Smell sketch, uh, which was for original Coca-Cola. If you haven't, go back and listen to that. It's a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah. Fast talking What the fuck are we going to do for this newspaper sketch? people? Oh, man. This- <laughs> we already used it. Yeah. I don't know who's got the sketch that week, but that's going to be a difficult one. But that's right. We are looking at the Coen brothers and Tim Robbins and Jennifer Jason Lee and all those other wonderful people. And Paul in Newman. The HUD Proxy. That's right. Paul Newman, of course. Have, How we, could ca- I forget? have we had Paul Newman? Oh, yeah. We did Color of Money uh, with our buddy MJ. Yes. I yeah. think that might it have been our like, first and only uh, Paul Newman I, film. But yeah, I'm I think so. We don't really have a lot of Paul Newman on the list. We got to get some more of his films up here for sure. True story. Uh, very briefly, uh, we have a description here of an ambitious but naive young man. Uh, played by Tim Robbins, rapidly moves up the corporate ladder from the mailroom to the executive suite, unaware that he is a part of the board of directors' nefarious scheme led by Paul Newman. This one's for the kids, Jason. Um, <laughs> you I'm know, so glad we found a way to sneak in some uh, Coen brothers into our season here. This is fantastic. I'm so, so, so excited. 100%. So go ahead and watch The Hudsucker Proxy if you haven't. And if you haven't, you're in for a treat. This movie is a delight. I haven't seen it in probably 12 years, but Ryan and I have both seen this one before. We both really enjoy it. You probably picked up on that, but it'll be a good rewatch. It's been, like I said, how long has it been for you, Ryan? Been a long time. Too long. The, Too long. Yeah. So we'll see if we still enjoy it as much as we did before. Maybe we'll like it more. Maybe we'll like it less. Who knows? Either way, we hope that you will join us next week. This is Jason Peters and Ryan Siebold saying thanks for celebrating film with us right here at Esoterica Cinema.